Hello and welcome to the Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, February the 1st. Venous thromboembolism, the silent killer. But how many people in a hospital are at risk? And of those at risk, what proportion are receiving appropriate prophylaxis? In a moment, I'll be interviewing Dr. Alexander Cohen, vascular physician and epidemiologist at King's College London. But before that, our lead editorial this week takes a close look at the US healthcare system. I'm joined on the line from New York by my colleague Faith McClellan. Faith, I think it's fair to say there is no perfect healthcare system, but can you just tell us why the US healthcare system is so convoluted? Richard, that's such a great question. I'd love to tell you why the U.S. healthcare system is so convoluted, but I really don't think there's more than one or two people in this country who understand it. I can tell you that the basic problem is that we have an employer-based system of health insurance. So health insurance in this country has always been tied to one's job and what one's employer uh, provides in the way of health coverage. So it varies from job to job just very, very widely as to what kind of health insurance one might have and what that insurance would cover. It's just a nightmare because it is so complicated. But presumably to help us through the convolution, the Institute of Medicine, the IOM, have just brought a report out, haven't they? What are they calling for? Well, they were asked by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to out a system for figuring out what is clinically effective care and how might that be more systematized in this country in a way that would make care more coherent, that would make medical care vary less by geography, by individual practitioner, by type of healthcare coverage. So they were asked by the foundation to to come up with a, a framework for a kind of organization that would look at effective practices in medicine. And so this is a summary, or this is their report on what works in U.S. healthcare and what that would look like, a framework for a national clinical effectiveness assessment program. And we can't talk about this, obviously, without talking about the fact that it's election year in the United States. How does this report and the healthcare question generally relate to what the politicians are saying? Well, I think the report is based in part on the fact that we do have the most expensive health care on the planet. And no one believes that this can continue indefinitely, or even I think most Americans think it just can't continue for very long. So, of course, all the presidential candidates have had this reform of the health care system as part of their platforms, the Democrats much more so than the Republicans. But it is clear that something has got to be done or we're going to bankrupt ourselves and the planet. So marrying the effectiveness of clinical care, determining the effectiveness of what we do in health and medicine in this country should obviously help rein in costs and will be tied in some fashion to a reform of the whole health care system. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more about it. Well, hopefully we'll hear a lot more about it because obviously the healthcare system is just a core activity in the United States. So, Faith, thank you very much. Final question, who is going to be the Democratic frontrunner and the Republican frontrunner and who's going to win the election? (laughs) Oh, Richard, you know, I'm not sure I'm paid enough to make these kinds of predictions. Let's see, shall I take the bait? Let me tell you the Republican nominee will be John McCain. The Democratic nominee is still up for grabs. And as for who's going to win the election on November 4th, watch this space, or shall I say, tune in to our podcast.
But back to our main feature this week. We published a large international epidemiological study assessing the risk of venous thromboembolism in hospital. Earlier I spoke to the lead author of the study, Dr Alexander Cohen from King's College London, UK. Dr Cohen, how serious is this problem in the clinical setting of venous thromboembolism? And up until your current study, which we're going to discuss in a moment, what has research told us up until now in this area? Up until now, we know that venous thromboembolism is the single most important preventable cause of death in hospital patients. Autopsy studies show that around 5 to 15% of all patients dying in hospital die from a pulmonary embolism. We also know that when it comes to preventing pulmonary embolism, a number of studies comparing different preventive measures such as hand washing, uh, antibiotic prophylaxis and pressure care. Venous thromboembolism prophylaxis is the single most important thing you can do for a patient, not just based on efficacy and safety, but also cost. Moving into the study, you talk importantly of guidelines that have been in existence for around 15 years. What are those guidelines saying in terms of the management of venous thromboembolism in the clinical setting? The guidelines are quite straightforward. They say that patients having major surgery, usually an anaesthetic for more than 45 minutes, or patients with minor surgery with risk factors for venous thromboembolism are at risk, and they generally require anticoagulant prophylaxis, which may or may not be combined with mechanical prophylaxis, such as intermittent pneumatic compression and graduated compression stockings. Mechanical methods are generally not recommended on their own because they've not been proven to prevent pulmonary embolism mortality, nor have they been proven to prevent all-cause mortality, whereas heparins have been proven to prevent all-cause mortality as well as venous thromboembolism-related mortality generally from pulmonary embolism. There are also similar guidelines for medical patients, and these are patients with common medical conditions like heart failure, respiratory failure, infectious disease, cancer and rheumatological disorders and the recommendations there are purely for anticoagulant thromboprophylaxis. There's been no research at all on mechanical methods. However, common sense tells us that if any patient, whether they're surgical or medical, has a contraindication to anticoagulant prophylaxis, such as an increased risk of bleeding, then we recommend, based on empirical data, that all patients receive some form of mechanical prophylaxis instead. And by mechanical prophylaxis, you mean things like compression stockings, that sort of thing? Yes, compression stockings. And there are some more detailed, perhaps more efficacious or effective methods, such as intermittent pneumatic compression and foot pumps. So moving on to... The current study, which you're the lead author of, first thing to say when you look at it is this is a very large, impressive piece of epidemiology. I mean, you're talking about thousands of patients in medical wards and having surgery across many countries and many continents. Can you just state clearly what your objectives were when you set out to do this study? And do comment, if you could, on how you pulled it together across all the different countries. Our main aim was to get an accurate assessment of and worldwide estimates of risk of venous thromboembolism within hospitals, looking at both medical and surgical patients. And along with that, we wanted to assess how many of those patients at risk were getting some form of thromboprophylaxis and how many were getting what would be described as recommended thromboprophylaxis as described by the American College of Chest Physicians, which is 
really the most respected uh, view in this area. We looked at 352 hospitals in 32 countries and we examined the files of over 68,000 patients which we entered in the study. We did this between August and February last year. So within, within a period of six months, and the, the key to doing this, I think, was the preparation. We spent over two years planning the study, translating the protocol into 15 different languages, having investigators meeting, and having a big team. And much of this was uh, organised by the Centre of Outcome Research at the University of Massachusetts in Worcester, um, Massachusetts. And they have great experience in doing uh, large uh, surveys or cross-sectional studies and they were the key to pulling together so many hospitals and so many investigators and so many patients in such a short period of time. And in terms of the results, I mean the results are clear and, and are striking. Can you just quantify those results and also were you surprised by those results? We weren't surprised by the results but what we had in the past was information from small studies done in limited hospitals in different settings. The reason for doing this study was that we randomised the hospitals in each of the countries and we stratified them for academic institutions and non-academic institutions. What we feel we got is a much more accurate estimate of the number of patients at risk and a much more accurate estimate of the number of patients getting something to prevent that risk. If I could explain, lots of studies have shown that medical patients are at risk may be somewhere between 20% and 80%, but the majority of studies show that about 40% of medical patients are at risk. And this is what our study confirmed. About 40% of medical patients are at risk, about two-thirds or 64% of surgical patients are at risk. When we looked at what was being done about that risk, 60% of surgical patients were getting something to prevent thrombosis, but only 40% of medical patients. And overall, what we saw was that worldwide, half of all patients who were at risk of thrombosis were being left at risk of this potentially life-threatening disorder. This was true throughout the world, you know, that there was great variation, but overall, about half the patients were left at risk, and many of them in developed countries as well as poorly developed countries. Thank you. That's interesting. And presumably, there's a wider understanding of the risk among surgical patients because surgery is obviously associated with anesthesia and immobilization of patients. Yes. I think that, it, that it's easier for surgical patients to define the period of risk because it is the operation. And at the time of the operation uh, or of the time shortly before the operation, if, if it involves trauma, the increased thrombotic risk occurs. But for medical patients, it's less clear because they're often sick for some days or weeks before they need to come into hospital and many medical conditions are chronic. I think the real difference here is an educational one. I really believe that surgical patients get thromboprophylaxis because up until about 10 years ago, 95% of all the data on thromboprophylaxis was in surgical patients. And the same with the guidelines, about 90% of all guidelines covered surgical patients. And it's only in the last 10 years that medical patient studies have been published in a number of major journals 
And those studies have brought to the attention of physicians that their patients are at risk and that risk can be prevented. I think that because we've known about this for 30 or 40 years in surgical patients and only 10 years in medical patients, the message hasn't got through because it takes so long to change medical practice. Indeed, that leads neatly to my final question in a way, and that is impressive and clear results from this large piece of epidemiology. How can we apply these results to individual countries? Presumably guidelines exist in different countries. Don't we need some sort of standardization of guidelines? That's a good point because we have standard guidelines which the American College of Chess Physicians use and have published and we believe that they're the best. What I think we need to do is to educate the doctors, particularly the specialists that are looking after the people in hospital, that their patients are at risk and something should be done. So more the physicians than the surgeons. But one of the important implications worldwide is that we've always heard that rates of cardiovascular disease and including venous thrombosis are very low in the Middle East or very low in Asia or very low here and there. And the results of those, these studies show that every country we looked at had a significant risk of thrombosis. In fact, the risk was very similar across the 32 countries. The thing that varied was the amount of thromboprophylaxis that was used. And I think because venous thromboembolism is a complication, it doesn't actually get the sort of not in the forefront of the doctor's minds because they're looking after the surgical problem, they're looking after the medical problem and the venous thromboembolism which is often a silent killer isn't so clear to them. Yet things like MRSA where you can clearly see what's going on with the infection and you can culture the bug and all that sort of thing, people create a lot of fuss about that but in actual fact more than 20 times the number of people die from venous thromboembolism as a result of being in hospital than die from MRSA. And they're based on UK statistics. Dr Cohn, thanks very much for talking to The Lancet. Thank you very much, Richard. Dr Alexander Cohen concluding this week's podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next week.